All right, we're second lesson in our series on the Gospels, and uh, we're going to try to put together a systematic harmony of the Gospels. We're not going to take out any verses. Right now, we, uh, I, I went back and tried to get some brief notes from, from last week so that you'll have all of the notes if you uh, like those things. And uh, we, we are dealing right now with the prehistory of Jesus' earthly existence in the Gospels. There's a certain part of that, the uh, context of the Gospels, uh, what we believe, where we're starting. We have four accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And uh, we believe that all these accounts are factual and that each uh, one has uh, each word in the four Gospels is for us today and that we must keep what is in the Gospels in the context of the entire Scripture. Now, those are the basic rules uh, of which you must approach any passage in Scripture. You must believe it's the Word of God. You must believe that it has application and direction for you in your life today. And if you do not keep Scripture in the context of Scripture you're going to get into trouble. Now, last week we studied about the pre-existence of Christ, that he is the very creator God of the universe. And now we begin picking up the history. And uh, what I am trying to do is to put our, our text of our scripture as it covers things in the chronological history that it occurred. So Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, where would that come? That should actually come on the very last page because Luke wrote the Gospels at the very... Uh, he was the last of the four writers from what we understand. He did all of his... Thing. And so if you wonder why I'm skipping the first four verses of Luke is because chronologically as they were written, as they occurred, he was summing up the entire history of everything that was in the Gospels. Whereas John, when he started his Gospel, was all the way back at the book of Genesis. And so we're going to use the rule of what is covered in the verse, is go- in the passage, uh, is going to determine where it comes in our uh, context. And it's interesting where Luke begins his story. He, he tells us, and we'll just summarize verses 1 through 5 here. Let's just read them through just to put them in the context. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had a perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. So now we have... Luke writing to Theophilus, and some people want to say that Theophilus was a real person. Other people say, well, Theophilus just simply means lover of God, and so he was writing to all people who, who loved God. But it, the simplest understanding was there was a man that he was actually writing to. 
And he said, you believe these things, and here I'm going to give you the complete story. And it's interesting that the Holy Spirit of God chose to start have Luke start with Zechariah. Now, does anybody know why that's important? How about we turn to the book of Malachi? I was... Uh, there's a joke uh, among certain people, you know, the Italian prophet Malachi. Uh, and somebody actually looked that up. It's supposed to be on the Internet somewhere, Malachi, the, the Italian prophet, but he was not Italian. Uh, there was no such thing as Italians when Malachi wrote his prophecy. And he was the last of the prophets, approximately 400 years before the birth of Christ, And we come here, and uh, uh, verse 5 and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse." So we have a prophecy in the book of Malachi finishing here. It says, before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now we understand that the great and dreadful day of the Lord from our study last year in the book of Revelation is talking about all of those events in in the book of Revelation in particularly. But we're also talking about the coming of the Messiah, the day of the Lord. And it says that Elijah was coming first. Now, how many remember what Jesus said about John the Baptist? He said, if you will, this is Elijah. So Luke starts at the beginning. God had foretold that there would come one before the Messiah to announce his coming and to explain to people who Jesus is. And that person was one of our favorite characters, John the Baptist, amen? And uh, John was an incredible time. Don't let somebody call him John the Baptizer. Uh, That's not in your Bible. In your Bible, his title was John the Baptist. Now, somebody said he was the first Baptist preacher. Well, technically, he wasn't because he didn't preach about a church. Uh, but he did, and we'll, we'll cover this in, in when we get to it, which we should tonight. Uh, well, we won't tonight. We'll, we'll cover it when we get to John's explanation of baptisms and things, uh, what John actually did and how he did it. But here in verse 5 is where we're going to start. So if you're following your scripture chronologically, you have John 1, 1 through 5, and then you have Luke 1. 1 verse 5 through 25 is the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and the, and the uh, other things that were going on. There was in the days of Herod the king of Judea a certain priest named Zechariah of the course of Abia and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. And they had no child because that Elizabeth was barren and they both 
were now well stricken in years. Now, Luke takes some time to give us the personal history of Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. They were both of uh, the lineage of the priest. In fact, Elizabeth was a daughter of the high priest of Aaron's line. And so uh, that certainly would have given Zechariah some uh, prominence in his family, having married a daughter of the high priest, a direct line to Aaron. And he was of the course of Abia. And you can look that up in the Old Testament when David established the courses of the priests so that they would serve in the temple that Solomon would build in order. This was one of the 24 courses of the priests. And they would serve. And you have to realize that down through the generations, there were many, many priests. In fact, I believe today... Uh, the name Cohen is connected, though they cannot prove it because the records were destroyed. But the name Cohen, Jewish, the Jewish name Cohen is connected to the tribe of Levi. And that would be, of course, it wouldn't be just uh, the Levites, but they, uh, a priest would have to be of the sons of, uh, of Aaron and his uh, grandsons in the direct line of that would then qualify to be the high priest. But something that the Bible says about very few people, it says that both Zacharias and Elizabeth, according to the practices, according to the ordinances, were blameless. Now that's one thing for you to think you're blameless. But that's another thing when God puts it in his word. And you have to remember, it had been 400 years since there was an open word of God. The things that went on in the family of the very family of the high priest, uh, just to put it very plainly, were the things that soap operas were made out of. I mean, you're talking about vile things that were going on, the, the stories of the Maccabees, and, and finally Herod himself was managed to find one of the granddaughters of, of the Maccabees and tried to marry into that line, even though he was an Edomian, an Edomite. And uh, I mean, the whole thing was rather bizarre. And in this bizarre world where the entire Jewish religion had delved into just simply empty practices and rituals, the priests, the Sadducees, who were in control of the temple and the sacrifice, as we'll find out later in the Bible, did not believe in angels. They did not believe in God's revelation. They did not believe in spirits. Uh, they didn't believe in anything. I like what one guy said. He said the Sadducees did not believe in the real truth of the Bible, so they were sad, you see, right? Uh, you can always remember what they believed that way uh, because when you deny the truth and the power of the Word of God, God used angels. God was a God who communicated with man the high priest and his people, the people who controlled the temple site, didn't believe any of that. And yet, Zacharias was blameless in following the laws and the ordinance of God. That tells you something about Zacharias. 
And it wasn't just Zacharias. I mean, how many stories do we know about a family where, well, the husband, boy, he's a good guy, but the rest of his family, I mean, just forget about him. Or mama is a holy woman and she shows up at church every Sunday to pray for her wicked family. That wasn't the case with Zacharias. Both he and Elizabeth were wholly dedicated to the Lord, but they had a problem. They couldn't have any children. And now they were getting old. Ladies, you think this biological time clock stuff is something new? Mm -mm. Uh, Go back to the story of Sarah and Abraham. Amen? Uh, There's nothing new in mankind. Mankind has always had the same problems. It is the Lord who is in control. And so we see Zechariah, and it spends quite a bit of time here. Let's just read through the scriptures. And we won't always take time to read through everything, and we're certainly not going to read through all the genealogies tonight. But it says, It came to pass while he executed the priest office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Now, this would be uh, probably the highest honor of Zacharias's life. He would only have this opportunity once or twice in his entire life to enter into the holy place and burn the incense. There were just so many priests. They divided up all the jobs and everybody had a different little thing that they did so that all of the priests who were... Uh, able to function and serve as priest, would have a part in the temple ritual and sacrifice. And so here's Zechariah's turn to burn incense on the golden altar before the veil. This was done every morning, every evening. There were people there waiting at the temple, it tells us. And of course, we know what the golden altar pictured, Amen. It's a picture of our prayers before God. Zechariah knew that. He affirms that picture. Because what happens is, as he was burning incense, the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. And there appeared unto him the angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled And fear fell upon him, but the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for what? Thy prayer is heard. Now imagine this priest having this opportunity, this this once in a lifetime is what the historians tell us, chance to burn incense, and he comes as an old man with a special request all of his own. No one else knows about this. It's just on his heart between he and God. The sorrow and the difficulties that he and his wife have gone through, not being able to have a child, the desire to have that son to carry on the priestly line and and just the earthly things. And here we have Zechariah presenting his request along with the prayers of the nation of Israel 
and an angel appears. We'll find out his name was Gabriel in a few moments and addresses Zacharias directly. And the first thing he says is, fear not, of course, and then your prayer is heard. You've been praying. You're offering your incense for the nation of Israel and those that are gathered outside and for your own prayers. And God has heard the prayer and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son and thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness and many shall rejoice at his birth for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord. And shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. Now this is something interesting about John the Baptist. This is the only person in history this is said of. Of course, the Lord Jesus Christ is God. But of a human being, only John the Baptist had no choice in the issue of his salvation. He was filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. Now, the Calvinists like to get all excited and they want to say that God predestinates people to heaven and to hell. I can't find that in the scripture. But what I can find is the only person that did not have a choice was John the Baptist. He was totally controlled by the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. Amen? That makes him a special individual. It's not said of any other human being. And so as the angel is explaining this, it tells of his ministry, verse 17, and he shall go in the spirit and power of Elias or Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is why Luke starts with the story of Zechariah, because it takes the New Testament narrative and picks up exactly, word for word, 400 years later, where the narrative left off. Don't let anyone try to tell you that four guys sat down and just decided to write some words No, the Holy Spirit of God was superintending and putting this thing together so that we have one Bible from cover to cover. Amen? And historically, the narrative starts with the story of Zechariah, which is his son that was to be born. John the Baptist was the fulfillment of the prophecy of Malachi and other prophecies concerning the forerunner, he who would go before him to have people's hearts turn toward God to hear the message. And now we have Zechariah illustrating to us human nature. Here he is praying. How many years had he prayed? How long had he prayed about this son that had not come? We do not know. He's standing there and the angel appears to him and said, your prayer's heard, you're going to have a child. And what's Zechariah's first words? Look with me. Verse 18, whereby shall I know this? Now, I know you told me this, but how am I supposed to know? 
for I am an old man and my wife is well stricken in years. The biological clock has run out, man. Don't, you don't know who you're talking to. Oh, well, God knows who he's talking to. Amen. And God makes things work according to his plan. And, he's, and the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel that stand in the presence of God and am sent to speak unto thee and to show thee these glad tidings. And behold, thou shalt be dumb and not able to speak until the day that these things be performed because thou believest not my words which shall be fulfilled in their season. Now, the angel was not playing games here, was not pulling any punches. He said, Zacharias, you didn't believe my words. You know, we like to read through the Bible and make excuses. No, Zacharias was not believing what was being said. Now, here's God's response when we do not believe his word. Zacharias was the one that was dumb. Nobody else. Amen? And God's word got fulfilled right on schedule in spite of the dumbness of Zacharias. And of course, I know that when I use the word dumb today, you're thinking of a different definition uh, of the actual meaning. Uh, You're thinking of someone who lacks intelligence and I'm purposely leading you in that direction because anyone who disbelieves God's word lacks intelligence. Amen? Uh, It's just the way it works. We need to believe God's word, but God is already setting the level for us. He is giving us a living illustration of what happens when people do not believe his word. God's word gets fulfilled, and those who don't believe pay for it. Believe God's word. He has a lot of wonderful promises in this book called the Bible. Amen? I could could end a lot of emotional stress in people's lives if they would just believe what the Word of God says. Believe what the Bible says about salvation. You go back and go over your salvation back and forth and over again. You got problems. You got to believe God's Word. Some people don't believe they're forgiven. Hey, let me tell you something. He said he forgives. Last Thursday night, we had a fellow there. He said, I believe you can lose your salvation. I said, well, what does the word eternal mean? He said, it means forever without stopping. I said, so when do you get eternal life? He he said, well, I still believe you can lose your salvation. Uh, That doesn't work that way, my friend. If God gives you eternal life, it's forever. Believe his word. How many of you have ever felt like God didn't care about you? Guess what? That's your problem, not his. Because this book tells me he does. In fact, it tells me that he cares more about you and I than we can care about any other human being. And so what we have here is just an illustration. I I hope you don't mind if we stop and get some of the pictures and some of the teaching that is in here along the way. But we need to grab a hold of this thing in the life of Zacharias. Here he is getting direct revelation from God through the angel Gabriel. And he says, how do I know that it's going to come to pass? 
Angel, Gabriel said, I said so. That's why. But just so you know, you're not going to be able to speak until all of this happens. The only one who suffers when you don't believe God's word is you. I wonder if Elizabeth was happy about that. That her husband couldn't speak for all of those months. And just something to think about. A uh, little humor in there. Uh, who knows? Maybe Zacharias was one of those wordy ones who just sat there and talked and talked and talked and talked. And Elizabeth was going, Oh, I'm enjoying the peace and quiet in my house. Am I the only one that thinks like that? I mean, doesn't that kind of fit the passage? I mean, and, and we'll probably find out that Zacharias is one of those silent ones when we get to heaven. But um, it's just interesting what the Lord does. Amen. And, that, and the people waited for Zacharias. This Everything that was in the temple went by clockwork and anything that got out of line. Now, you have to understand. There could have been a line of four or 5,000 people waiting to offer sacrifices during the day at the temple. How in the world are you going to get all that done? If the guy offering incense takes 15 minutes, 20 minutes to get it done. I mean... They weren't looking at their wristwatches because they didn't have such things, but they were marveling. They were Whispers were running through the crowd. What's taking so long? And, and maybe Zechariah did something wrong or he comes out and he's supposed to bless the people. He's supposed to pray a, a prayer and he opens his mouth. Nothing comes out. And he starts bellowing, beckoning them with his arms and flailing about trying to uh, uh, explain himself and I'm sure that he's ushered off of the temple stage very quickly to avoid more embarrassment. And we don't know what else happens except he gets to go home. And we read the rest of our story. And it tells us that Elizabeth hides herself for five months, saying, verse 25, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked upon me to take away my reproach from among men. And so we have Elizabeth almost following Zechariah's example. She hides herself. I don't know that this is true. I mean, here she is. We don't know how old she was, but uh, certainly past the normal time of bearing children. Maybe she was in her 50s or whatever, or could have been in her 70s. We don't know. But all of a sudden, she starts getting sick every morning. All of a sudden, her clothes aren't fitting right anymore. And I mean, all these things are happening. And I'll tell you what. She waits for five months before she really believes that God is doing what he is doing. But in the sixth month, now this is the sixth month and people go through this, and you're going to see these notations of time in the Bible, and some of them are going to be quite contradictory because there was a Hebrew reckoning of time. There was a Roman reckoning of time. The Romans counted their hours 
much the way we count our hours. The Jewish people counted their hours from sunrise to sunset. So the sixth hour in the Jewish reckoning was noon. The sixth hour in the Roman reckoning was 6 a.m. The Jewish people had two calendars. The first month came twice in the year. The new year was celebrated Rosh Hashanah, late September, early October, after the Feast of Tabernacles, after the, uh, which occurred after the um, uh, Day of Atonement. And then Passover was the first day of the year, or the, the month that Passover was in was the first month of the year. And so they had a, a civil calendar and, a, and a, a different calendar that they ran on. And, of course, the Romans had a different calendar altogether. But here we have a different example of time reckoning completely. This might not be referring to the sixth month of the year, but the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy would seem to be the under the simplest understanding because she hid herself five months and the sixth month the angel Gabriel shows up and of course everybody's trying to make this say and you know what the simple truth of the matter is? You can't be 100% sure which one is being reckoned. Now what's the import of that? The import of that is nobody knows what day of the year Jesus was born on. Uh, I wish we could take some time to deal with that one, but we won't get through our outline at all. But uh, I have read some fantastic things. One thing I can promise you for sure, Jesus was not born on December 25th. Uh, Just does not work in any of the reckonings whatsoever you can come up with. But I did read one valiant attempt to say that December 25th was actually the day of Jesus' conception. Now, how anybody could come up with that, not even your doctor knows that. And so the simple truth of the matter is, if we follow the wording as simple as we can, this sixth month here where Mary is getting the Annunciation is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And uh, if you don't believe that, uh, that's fine with me. I'm not going to argue with you about it. I'm just taking the uh, uh, text in the way that it, the story falls and the way that it goes. And the angel goes to uh, uh, Galilee to a city uh, named Nazareth. He finds a virgin And if you got one of those new Bibles, it'll say a young woman instead of a virgin. Uh, Let me tell you, there's a difference. And if you're not old enough to know, don't worry about it. But if you are, you understand exactly what I'm saying. She was his spouse. She was already engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, 
Thou art highly favored, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. Now, it's absolutely interesting, all of the things that have been read into this passage. Uh, I was just reading one that said, Mary grew up in the temple in Jerusalem and lived most of her life there. The only problem was that would have been a hard trek for a little girl all by herself to go from Jerusalem back to Nazareth. It's about 65, 70 miles over some dangerous roads and all of those things. And, And they've tried to attribute all kinds of things to Mary, except what the Bible simply says. She was a holy young lady. We don't know how old she was. Could have been 16, 17 years old. That was the traditional marrying age, maybe even a year or so earlier than that to a couple years after that. But somewhere right in that target date, that's probably how old Mary was. And by the way, Joseph wasn't 95 years old with one foot in the grave and another one on the banana peel, uh, as the uh, Catholic traditions like to make him. Uh, That doesn't fit the biblical record as well. But, and, and no, Mary wasn't night and day in prayers to God and, and all of these kinds of things. The fact that she was already engaged to Joseph tells us that she was living a perfectly normal biblical life. She was trying to follow the pattern that was in the scriptures and just be as simply obedient to God as she possibly could. Now, in our mind's eye, we we have been influenced by Hollywood, whether we like to think so or not. We always think of beautiful young woman and beautiful old man, uh, beautiful young man and How many of you have ever seen old pictures? You know what? People that lived a hundred years ago were just as ugly as we are today. Amen? And in fact, some of those people that you would just expect to be so... uh, How many of you have ever seen a picture of the real Charles Wilder? I mean, Charles Ingalls of the Little House fame. If you've ever seen a real picture, I mean, that guy was uglier than a mud fence. Uh, But, uh, and I'm not exaggerating. He also had a lot of problems, both physical and emotional and economic and every other way. Some of them induced by his own poor life habits. He was not a wonderful father. In fact, most of what was written in those little house books was an attempt for... Uh, Laurel's Inglewilder to cover up how horrible her life really was as a little girl out on the prairie. That's the real history. And uh, in fact, someone said uh, uh, one of the books is Life at Silver Lake. Silver Lake is now a sewage treatment plant somewhere in the Midwest. Uh, I mean, don't get caught up in making Hollywood stars out of Mary and Joseph. 
I want you to remember one thing. These were real stories about real people who loved and served the Lord. That's what your Bible is about. And the reason I make that is because it's so easy for us and there's been so much veneration of Mary that everybody likes to lift all of these biblical people up on such a plane that we have a ready excuse for us not to follow the biblical record and rule and try to be obedient to God just like the people in the Bible text were. What did Peter say? He wrote his epistle to those who obtained like precious faith. What did James say? You can have the same prayer life that Elijah had if you'll do what Elijah did. God wants us to be real Christians. And get rid of the hype. Mary was a real woman. She was seeking those things that the Bible allowed her to seek. She was looking forward to her coming marriage. And all of a sudden, uh, an angel appears to her. She is troubled. She's told that she's going to have a son and that his name is going to be Jesus. He's going to be great. He's going to be the son of the highest. And he's going to have the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Now, right there, the angel Gabriel explained to Mary all of the difficulties that the scribes and Pharisees would face when they met Jesus during his earthly ministry. How in the world could he be an ordinary man and have a kingdom that lasts forever? Amen? How could he be called the son of the highest and be just an ordinary man? People argued all back and forth about when Jesus became deity or if Jesus was a deity and if Jesus was truly a man. The Bible explains this whole thing. In the beginning was the Word, the Creator God of heaven, already existent before the first ray of light came from God's spoken word. And yet, he would be born as every human being is born. He would go through all the trauma. He would be carried in the womb of Mary. He would be born. He would have to grow and develop as every human being did. I can't imagine the condescension of God that made these things be. But I'm sure glad it was there. How about you? It shows me His love for us as human beings. And so Mary's question was simply this. How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? Mary was saying, now just a moment. I I may not be able to write a biology book, but I do understand that there has to be a man involved in order to have a baby. And here is God's answer, and the theological experts have been writing on this one verse for libraries worth of writing. He said, 
And the angel answered in verse 35, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And here's an example. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said... Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. And Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste into the city of Judah and entered in the house of Zacharias and saluted Elizabeth. And it came to pass when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb. Now there's evidence that the Holy Spirit was already at work in the life of of John the Baptist. And uh, he, Mary uh, Elizabeth was six months pregnant. It says that when, look what it says here. It says that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost, and spake out with a loud voice, saying, Blessed art thou among women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And whence is this to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For lo, as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she that believed, for there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the Lord. Now, it's absolutely amazing to me that the beginning of the New Testament story is all centered around women. Is it not? That God began things. He told Zacharias, and what did Zacharias do? He got dumb, amen? More ways than one. He didn't believe. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Ghost. And who gets the praise? Well, God does. But who got the comfort? Well, Mary did, didn't she? Do you know how traumatic things were going to be for Mary by the time this was all over? I mean, this was territory that had never been covered, and yet the historians told us that more than one young lady who had been involved in sin had tried to uh, tell the story of which happened to Mary. Now, we don't know. That's just what the historians tell us. I really don't put a lot of validity in that. Now, after the events are recorded in the Bible, yeah, people always copy the Bible, but you know what? doesn't work that way now, does it? Mary was the unique birth in all of history. God superintended many births. We have the birth of Isaac. We have the birth of Jacob and Esau. We have, uh, uh, we can just go down through. We, of course, we have John the Baptist here, but Jesus' birth was different. And Elizabeth praises God and encourages Mary in the word of God. And then we have Mary's praise of God in verse 46. 
And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and, the spirit, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. Whenever you have somebody who wants to talk about Mary being the mother of God, just take her here. Take them here and let them read Mary's word. If Mary was the mother of God, how in the world could she rejoice in her Savior? If she was immaculately conceived, if she was the mother of the Savior in the essence, in the way that the Catholic and Orthodox theology has placed it, Mary doesn't need a Savior according to Catholic theology. In fact, the Pope that was John Paul II and the one that is now is trying to actually make Mary a co-redemptrix. Part of the redemption work was done through Mary. This, of course, is blasphemy according to the Bible. And it is totally refuted by, the, by Luke in his testimony of Mary's own words. She says, I rejoice in my Savior. Sinners need a Savior. Amen? Mary said, I'm a normal human being. I have broken God's law. I agree with God's testimony for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I don't know how this works, but the baby I'm giving birth to is going to be my savior. He is going to save me from my sins. I don't understand it. But see, when you have complicated things, God explains them right at the beginning. The hypostatic union has already been explained. God was going to overshadow Mary and he would do the work. And the child that was born, as Mary understood it, and as is true in every sense of the word, would be her savior. And she goes on and explains how that God has pulled down the uh, the proud and the haughty things, and he has exalted the humble things. And, of course, James, another one of Mary's sons who wrote the book of James, tells us God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. And so Mary abode with her about three months and returned to her own house. And now we have the birth of John, as recorded here. And all the neighbors and cousins came in, and I tried to get as much of the scripture here uh, as I could. And uh, they named the child, and of course, uh, there had to be communication between John and Elizabeth, I mean, Zacharias and Elizabeth, because when the baby was born, it was Elizabeth who told all the family, his name is going to be John. They said, no, 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 it's got to be Zacharias. I mean, you you got to understand, you've waited your whole life to carry on Zacharias' name. we got to call him after his father. And they went to Zacharias, who was still dumb, couldn't speak. And they said, what's his name? And he wrote on a table, his name is John. And immediately, all things were now fulfilled. Zacharias could speak. And he goes down through the next to last verse. (coughs) 
And I'm not trying to be tedious here, but verse 80 says, And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing to Israel. Now that was John's life from the time that he was probably about 12 or 13 years old. He left home. He went out and he lived in the desert and communed with the Lord until the day that he began his public ministry. Just something quickly about John, and we'll just draw a line in our notes right here and pick up next week. Is John's entire ministry, his whole purpose for living, his miraculous conception and everything he does was a time period shorter than six months. From the time he began his ministry until he was put into jail was basically about six months in time. How'd you like to have your whole life for six months? But if it's in fulfillment of God's word, that's where it ought to be. Amen? What did John say? He must increase. I must decrease. And so we look forward to the life of John. And if you want to know anything else about John's upbringing, you will find that out in uh, Matthew chapter 3. You'll find out his wonderful diet. How many want to go to John's house for dinner? I hope he at least roasted the grasshoppers before he ate them. There's no evidence that that happened, but I I hope he at least roasted them. Um, Oh, anyway, we'll we'll cover that a little more in detail there. But what we're doing is I hope you see the story and the picture and the flow of the time and the text of your Bible and how that it just all kind of fits together. There'll be, as we get further in, there'll be some what we call parallel passages where you'll have uh, all, sometimes all four, sometimes two, sometimes three uh, of the writers all talking about the same event. And as you would expect, there'll be some differences. But most of those differences are reconciled very easily in the fact that there were four different testifiers. I told that to a fellow. He says, I know that argument, but I don't believe it. And I said, there's nothing I can do to help you. I mean, if you don't believe four different people would write a little differently. In fact, Luke comes in possibly as many as 30 years after all these events took place. Uh, there should be a little bit of differences in their wording and in the way that they view the events. Would you not agree with me on that? I mean, that's as simple and as plain as human beings living. And yet we'll find a synthesis, a connection, an agreement on the message that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who lived a sinless life, who died to pay the price for our sins, was buried and rose again, that we may have eternal life and that we have a responsibility to witness the story of Jesus to the world in which we live. Amen?
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this night. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the stories that are here. We ask now that you would give us an understanding of your gospels and that you would just help us to be encouraged and and to pick up the incredible messages. Lord, that we would not be like Zacharias was when he first heard your word. But Lord, we just believe it whether we want to or not. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be faithful to you as Zacharias and Mary and Elizabeth were. And Joseph later, as we find out about him, as these people were just simply faithful to your word in the midst of a dark and perverse generation. Lord, help us not to paint Hollywood faces on them but to let them be real, honest people that we may not use any excuse not to be obedient to your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. And before we finish that prayer, we'll just give you an opportunity if you would like to come forward and spend a little time at the altar. together and let's dismiss first take a moment